Our guest this week on Veterans Chronicles is Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. He is a freshman Republican senator, and he's also the author of a brand new book describing his tour of duty at Arlington National Cemetery. And Senator, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for your interest in Sacred Duty. Absolutely. Sacred Duty is a fantastic book. I don't always read the entire book uh, before a guest comes in. I'm almost done with it, and uh, it really is worth everyone's time. Uh, let's begin with the beginning of, of your story. Where were you born and raised? I was raised in Dardanelle, Arkansas, a small town in the Arkansas River Valley. I, I was born right across the river in Russellville, a slightly larger town because the hospital in Dardanelle couldn't deliver babies. Okay. <laughs> but uh, other than that uh, brief sojourn to be born in Russellville, I was born and raised uh, in Dardanelle and my family's cattle farm. Your dad, I believe, if I read the book correctly, is a Vietnam veteran. So what were you taught about the military growing up and how did his experience influence your decision to join the service? And so my father served in Vietnam. He volunteered in 1968 and then served most of 1969 uh, overseas in Vietnam as an infantryman. And my grandfather, his father, had been a sailor in World War II as well. I had two uncles on my mother's side who were both in the Air Force. So you could say that service runs pretty deep in our family, even though I wasn't from a military family uh, in the sense that we moved around all the time. But we learned from the earliest days to respect those who wore our nation's uniform and to appreciate the service that they rendered to our nation so that we could live in peace and freedom. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that my parents encouraged me to join the Army, especially when I told them I wanted to join to be an infantry officer despite my legal training uh, at a time of war in Iraq. But uh, once I joined, they were very supportive, and uh, I think it's been good for the entire family. My father's been very active in veterans' causes for the State Veterans Commission and the American Legion ever since then. So it doesn't sound like you were planning to join the service until 9-11. Obviously, that motivated a lot of people at that time to serve. Explain how your thinking went. Uh, yeah, I took kind of a circuitous route into the Army. Uh, I, after college, I had gone on to law school. I obviously planned to be a lawyer. Um, and then on my last year of law school, right at the beginning, uh, the 9-11 attacks happened, and that kind of changed my path in life. If I, I didn't want to practice law so much anymore. I, I wanted to go serve our country overseas, but I decided I did finish law school and then worked to pay off my loans. A couple of friends of mine in the Army told me that you know, the Army wouldn't go anywhere, the bad guys weren't going anywhere, and if I was making a lieutenant or private salary, my loans weren't going anywhere either. But uh, that was actually a good, uh, good two years for me to take to be prepared for the Army and the rigors, physical and mental. Um, so I finally signed up in 2004 and shipped out to basic training in uh, January of 2005. You alluded to it before. You could have gone into the JAG Corps, but you really wanted to do infantry. Why? I could have been a JAG lawyer, but where's the fun in that? You know, the, <laughs> the, uh, the Army needs lawyers just like it needs all of its professionals. But the infantry mission is the heart of the Army, to close with and destroy the enemy by means of fire and maneuver. I wanted to go out to, and lead infantrymen on the battlefield in Iraq, and ultimately I went to Afghanistan as well. As I describe in the book, that was a bit of an unusual choice, but uh, it was the choice that, that I made and really that so many other young Americans made in those days, giving up very promising, oftentimes lucrative careers, uh, perhaps most famously Pat Tillman, to go off and to serve our country overseas uh, in combat. And while that was certainly some of the most memorable days I served in the Army, uh, if I couldn't have been serving overseas in Iraq or Afghanistan, I can't think of a more honorable way to serve our nation uh, in uniform than to be serving with the Old Guard at Arlington National Cemetery to pay tributes and give honors to those who laid down their lives in defense of our nation. You were a member of the 101st Airborne Division. 
What kind of training was that like? Uh, so after I got out of Fort Benning, I was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division. They were actually already deployed overseas, so the training was pretty brief. Uh, I was well trained at Fort Benning uh, by the Army, and I went through officer candidate school and then infantry officer training, ranger school and airborne school, which is typical of new infantry lieutenants. But then I left for uh, Fort Campbell, the home of the Screaming Eagles, and within a month I was on the first bird going downrange to Iraq, and within just a few days of being in Iraq I had a platoon leader or I was a platoon leader uh, of 40 Screaming Eagles, uh, and that was in 2006. And we stayed there until about the end of 2006, came back right around Thanksgiving. That's also when I uh, got the notice from the Army, as I described in Sacred Duty, that I would be reassigned to Arlington National Cemetery. So we had a little bit of training time back at Fort Campbell whenever we got back from Iraq and back from our 30 days of block leave, but not much, not much before I shipped out to Fort Myer in the capital region. We'll get into the Old Guard in just a second, but you were there as a platoon commander at one of the worst times in the Iraq War. 2006 was not a good year. What was it like for so, you? Where, to, where were you and what yeah, were you doing? I can tell you that in 2006, in the months before President Bush announced the surge on the front lines, we knew that we were not winning the war. Um, we weren't necessarily losing, but on the infantry, you know, if you're not gaining, if you're not on the offense, if you're not winning, then in reality, you are losing because you're not getting closer to your end state, to meeting your mission achieving your objective. Um, we all knew on the front lines what was necessary. We needed more troops. We needed to be out among the people, not back in big fobs. We needed uh, a different kind of strategy, a counterinsurgency strategy. Uh, I can't say I had a lot of hopes coming back to the United States uh, after my tour in Iraq around Thanksgiving 2006 that we we're going to get those things. You know, the uh, president had just lost a major election in no small part because of the setbacks in Iraq. But to his credit, and I think history will reflect very well on George W. Bush, uh, the surge was his finest hour. Um, it was contrary to many of the recommendations he received from his own Pentagon, many of his advisors in the White House, certainly almost everyone in Congress. But rather than uh, simply end the war effort there, you know, he did what we all knew on the front lines was the right thing, a new strategy with the troops to support it. And although we saw the consequences of the surge in my early days at the Old Guard as we were performing more dignified transfers of remains at Dover Air Force Base and burying more of our fallen comrades in Arlington National Cemetery, by the end of my tour, we also saw the uh, success of it. Those numbers had declined rapidly, reflecting the much improved battlefield conditions in Iraq by the end of 2008. But when I was there in Iraq in 2006, it was pretty tough fighting, uh, and we lost a lot of really great young Americans. You also made a few headlines as a platoon commander, which isn't usual. Uh, you called out journalists for exposing one of President Bush's efforts to track terrorist financing. Tell that story. Well, this has been happening, unfortunately, since the early days of the war. I remember uh, it happened once when I was at Fort Benning, happened when I was in Iraq, that the New York Times published a very sensitive uh, program that Western governments use to track terrorist financing, even though that government or that program is lawful and fully briefed and to and supported by Congress. So I, I did, uh, maybe perhaps in an intemperate moment, fire off a letter to the editor that then ended up rocketing around the internet. Um, you know, I, I think I may have gotten in more trouble than I otherwise did uh, until the chief of staff of the Army at the time, General Pete Schoomaker, saw the note and he actually circulated it to all of the generals and colonels in the Army and encouraged them to disseminate the needs for operational security and the handling of sensitive information down to the lowest levels. So what could have been you know, a trouble spot for me turned out to be an attaboy for my commanders. But they also encouraged me, if I wanted to write letters to the editor in the future, to give them a heads up. Which so, I, I decided just to not write any more letters to the editor. So attaboy, but don't do it again. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of the way it goes. Okay, so early 2007, you're on your way to the Old Guard. Is that something 
you put in for, that you are recommended for? How did that work? So typically one does apply as an officer or NCO to the Old Guard, and one normally needs to have demonstrated proficiency in performing the job. Um, privates are a little bit different. They're selected through volunteers at Fort Benning that meet all the criteria for the Old Guard in terms of height, weight, physical fitness, test scores on the general intelligence tests, the Army administers, uh, no legal troubles. Um, I did not apply though, but I did in my final days in Iraq get notice in my Army email that I had new requests for orders to the Old Guard because my application had been accepted, so this was strange to me. So I went up to the call trailer and called the S1, the personnel officer over at Fort Myer, and asked him about it, and he told me that you know, the, the Old Guard was short of officers, they'd been authorized just to hand select a half dozen officers. Uh, in the end, we all came from the 101st because they were hoping to get officers just back from a combat deployment because in those days it would have set back one's career if, uh, if one went to the Old Guard before having a, a company-level combat deployment. So at this point, I thought maybe it was because of my superior performance as a platoon leader. I was uh, somewhat, I had my bubble burst though when they told me that no, that after sorting for all the criteria that were needed for Old Guard officers, height, weight, uh, you know, test scores, legal troubles, no legal troubles, just like privates, adding on things like combat tours, airborne qualified, ranger qualified. They simply chose the six tallest of us. And uh, sure enough, by the spring of 2007, we had uh, six soldiers there, captains, lieutenants, with 101st Airborne Combat patches on our right shoulders. And uh, one was 6'7", I'm 6'5", and the other four were 6'3". Wow. And you said in the book that usually they try to cap it around 6'4", but they bend it so a little the, bit in terms so of So the standards yeah, are 5'10 to 6'4 for male soldiers. Uh, they will sometimes make exceptions, usually exceptions, uh, upward, not uh, downward, um, but uh, I was a small exception to that, and I'm certainly glad the Army didn't just make an exception, but provided me orders there, because I, I might not have applied otherwise, and as I described in Sacred Duty, I would have missed out on the opportunity of a lifetime to pay tribute to our fallen heroes. Let's do a little background here. Uh, why is it called the Old Guard? So the name goes back to the Mexican War. By that point, the Old Guard was already 60 years old. Uh, it is the Old Guard, literally, of the Army. It's the oldest active duty infantry regiment dating back to 1784. And they fought in both major campaigns in Mexico, the Monterey Campaign under Zachary Taylor and the Mexico City Campaign under Winfield Scott. They'd also served with Winfield Scott 30 years earlier uh, up near Niagara Falls in the Battle or in the War of 1812. So when Mexico City fell and they were organizing the victory parade into Mexico City, Winfield Scott, perhaps out of uh, affection for the regiment with whom he served uh, 30 years prior, put the 3rd Infantry Regiment, as the Old Guard is still officially known today, uh, at the front of the victory parade. And then as the parade marched into Mexico City by the reviewing stand, Scott turned around to his staff and said, gentlemen, take your hats off to the Old Guard of the Army. And the name stuck and it's been known as that ever since. What are the duties of the regiment now at Arlington? So their main duties are twofold. Um, first, they perform the military honor funerals inside of Arlington National Cemetery. That can be from soldiers who were just killed on the battlefield two or three weeks ago to World War II veterans and Korea War veterans. Uh, they also guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, uh, where three unknown soldiers rest. And they have done that every moment of every day. Uh, since 1948 when they became the ceremonial units of the Army. The second major uh, function of the Old Guard in the Capital Region is to perform ceremonies. They perform retirement ceremonies every year for soldiers retiring after 20 years of service. They perform ceremonies at the Pentagon and at the White House, as I describe in Sacred Duty. Those are very high-stakes uh, ceremonies because you're performing in front of a world stage. Sometimes you have adversaries watching you to see what the quality of your soldiers are. That's one reason why the Army wants such uh, 
squared away soldiers inside of the old guard. A third mission that doesn't get performed very often, thankfully, but is there is that they are the nation, the primary defenders of the nation's capital. You know, the old guard is about 1,500 soldiers. That's by far the largest infantry unit in, in the capital region. So if there's any kind of contingency that happens, that's where you get young, physically fit infantrymen to perform, you know, tough physical duty. Uh, most notably on 9-11, uh, American Airlines Flight 77 slammed into the Pentagon just a couple hundred yards away from the cemetery. And funerals went on, but every other Old Guard soldier uh, was over at the Pentagon, first securing the site, then conducting the very uh, challenging, very physically difficult uh, recovery operation to remove the human remains from the Pentagon, remove their personal effects, and sort them out for their family to claim them. In addition to securing Fort Myer, which is not just the home of the Old Guard, but also the home of many of our Army's senior generals. So in contingencies, uh, the Old Guard is the one unit that the Army has in the Capital Region to go into traditional infantry mode, and that's why they continue to train on infantry tactics and infantry skills down to the individual soldier up to the platoon level, even while they're performing all those funerals in Arlington National Cemetery and ceremonies around the Capital Region. Fascinating, and we'll get into it a lot more. The book is Sacred Duty. The author is Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. We'll be right back on Veterans Chronicles. Our guest this week is Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. The book is Sacred Duty. We're talking about his tour at Arlington National Cemetery as a member of the Old Guard. And you mentioned the different duties that the Old Guard performs. Let's talk about the funerals at Arlington for uh, a, a moment. What is the responsibility of the Old Guard at those funerals? So the Old Guard performs the military honors for all Army soldiers, uh, whether they just died in battle a couple weeks ago, whether they were a World War II veteran. Um, different kinds of funerals, in part based on what the family requests or the kind of uh, veteran that we're laying to rest. Uh, but the things that all funerals have in common is that we always strove for perfection, that ethos of excellence, that even though we might perform 20 or even 30 funerals in a day, more than 100 in a week, we all knew that for each family, that was a once-in-a-lifetime moment, and it was a lifetime in the making. So it could take dozens and dozens of hours for a soldier to get his uniform up to standard, you know, the crisp presses or the handmade medals or the polished scabbards uh, for our sabers or our bayonets. Uh, it could take many more hours to get trained on how to fold the flag if you're on the casket team or, or fire that three-round volley with seven rifles to making it sound like just one rifle. Um, on the day of the funeral. You'd go out early in the morning, usually before the sun was up, to recon funeral uh, grave sites. So you make sure that there was no issues there, that if there were low-lying limbs, you knew where to march through so your rifles and the colors wouldn't hit limbs. If there was any kind of holes or divots around the grave site, the casket team knew where they were so they wouldn't stumble. All of that attention to detail, uh, all of that focus on achieving perfection is not out of fussiness or formality, it's designed to pay honor to that fallen warrior, to, to pay tribute to his family. So they have that one final indelible image of honor that they walk out of Arlington with that day. Did you have a, a role that you routinely did? So as an officer, I either presided over the funeral at the head of the casket as the officer in charge, or I would be the escort commander. Uh, for the largest funerals, you would have an escort platoon plus a platoon of the U.S. Army band and a color guard. Uh, the company grade officers would either 
serve as the escort commander. So I would be marching that escort from a transfer point where we transferred the remains from a hearse onto the horse-drawn caissons up to the gravesite, uh, and then standing at the gravesite to give the commands for that escort platoon for the firing party as well. As the officer in charge of a funeral, uh, you would stand at the head of the casket and you would be in charge of the entire operation. Your cues, all of, almost all of which were silent, seen by others, and executed based on those visual cues, not on uh, audible commands, uh, would help move the funeral along. And then ultimately, the casket team would pass the, flag, the folded flag to me and I would present that flag to the next of kin. You mentioned uh, before that you could be doing a funeral for a 90-something-year-old World War II vet or someone who had just lost their lives in Iraq or Afghanistan. In the book, I think one of the most moving parts is, is that you see families of World War II vets who they knew this was coming. It's still very sad, but they're usually pretty composed. Whereas with the, the active duty soldiers, it's very, very different. How did you, uh, what did you witness there? And how did you, who had obviously lost friends in these very same wars, keep your composure? The funerals could vary widely in terms of their size uh, and the, the family's grief and composure. Um, you know, I, I've lost grandparents. Uh, most people have lost grandparents or great-grandparents, especially when it's a slow decline. It's always sad to lose a grandfather or grandmother, but at the same time when someone's lived to be into their 80s and 90s, especially when they served heroically um, in their youth, um, I would view that as much of a celebration of life um, as it was a mourning of their passing. And I think their families viewed it in that regard as well. Didn't mean they weren't sad, but they certainly appreciated the honors we were paying to their um, loved ones long ago service. An active duty funeral is very different. Uh, in, in our cases, it was mostly young widows, uh, grieving parents and siblings, um, perhaps most poignantly sometimes young children, young children who didn't fully understand the implications of what was happening there at the gravesite. Um, and it, it was much harder on those families to have lost a loved one just a few days earlier in Iraq or Afghanistan who they helped to live a long and fruitful life with as those World War II or Korea or Vietnam veterans had lived when they returned from their service. For us in the Old Guard, um, our job at the gravesite is not to grieve, it's to honor. Um, that means that we put a high priority on what we call ceremonial composure, uh, that no matter how much the family was grieving in a public fashion. Our job, again, was to provide that indelible image uh, of honor, um, to maintain our composure, even when presenting the flag and giving condolences to a grieving widow or a grieving mom or dad for their loved one who had just fallen. Um, that's the kind of thing that, in the moment, um, you, you train on it, you focus on it, you accomplish the mission. But once you get back on the bus, once you get back to the barracks, it sticks with you for a long time. For those who don't know, they've seen it, but they haven't heard it. There's something you say when you present the flag. What do you say? Well, that's the condolences. It's changed over time. Uh, in 2012, uh, Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta standardized it across all the services, but that was part of the things we were tested on. So today, the condolences would go, you'd, you'd take a knee and you'd present the flag to the next of kin and say, on behalf of the President of the United States and the United States Army and a grateful nation, please accept this flag as a symbol of appreciation for your loved one's honorable and faithful service. Again, it's changed over time. It would be different for the other four services slightly because it would reflect their service, um, but it's something on which we trained um, and something that you, you'd never forget once you started doing it and once you were giving the flag in particular to a, a grieving young widow or widower or, or parent of, of a young soldier who just died overseas. 
is there any particular reaction from that next of kin that sticks with you? You know, it, it varied again. Some people simply accepted the flag and said thank you. Um, some would stand up and because once you presented the flag, we would return to attention and so render one final salute. Some would stand up and salute. Um, they'd shake your hand. Um, on some occasions, I even saw next of kin hug the officer. Uh, no matter how they, they responded, um, the officer in charge would respond in kind. Uh, you know, we weren't obviously trying to, sh to shake their hands wearing white gloves or, or, or to hug them, but at the same time, we wanted to make them feel like this was their funeral and that they were in charge and the emotions they expressed would be reciprocated and that they would walk away knowing that that soldier, even though he may be very tall and may have you know, that sharp V-shaped torso and look perfect, almost like a machine in uniform, was another human being who had ser served under arms just like their loved one and, and loved their loved one in the same way that they did. I have to ask this. Um, one of the things that happens at Arlington National Cemetery, I've noticed this wearing a t-shirt and shorts at the changing of the guard, is that in the summertime, it is brutally hot, or can be. And you guys are in full dress, blues I'm guessing, and sometimes these ceremonies can last a while. How in the world do you not wilt in that heat? Not just full dress blues, but a special kind of dress blues. It's not what you would just buy at clothing and sales, like I'd bought at uh, Fort Campbell before I left for the Old Guard, but a very heavy wool dress blue that takes a very sharp, crisp press to present that perfect image uh, in the cemetery. And you're right that in July and August, uh, it would get pretty steamy out there in the cemetery. I have to say, I probably followed the uh, weather reports in Arlington even more than I did when I was a leader in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, you know, something for which we train in the Old Guard, as we describe in Sacred Duty, we have some pretty strange rituals in training in the Old Guard. One is a standing proficiency test, where soldiers have to demonstrate they can stand for a certain amount of time in a heavy wool uniform without flinching, without uh, falling out. Uh, as an officer, my standing proficiency test lasted 75 minutes. Um, and that's all designed to ensure that when you're out on the marks at a funeral uh, or a ceremony, that you have the physical stamina and the mental discipline to stand at attention or stand at ease for as long as it takes. Um, when we're actually performing funerals, which we do typically on a weekly basis, you'd have primary responsibility for funerals. You know, as leaders, we reminded our soldiers every night, you know, you're gonna be back in the cemetery tomorrow, you need to take it easy just like you would for a physical fitness test or if you were in combat and you had a major operation. Get a good night's rest, eat a square meal, hydrate well with water and Gatorade, uh, don't hydrate too well with alcohol. Um, and be prepared to be back in the cemetery the next day. Uh, that didn't mean that it was perfect. Uh, I can remember one time as an uh, escort commander, I was standing in front of my escort, and the last man in the first rank uh, fell flat on his face, uh, yeah, like, kind of like a tree being cut down. But the old guard always has contingencies as well for these kind of events. Uh, so the assistant non-commissioned officer in charge, who was kind of a jack of all trades, if someone fa falls out as that soldier did that day, would walk over and scoop him up by his belt and carry them off the, uh, off of, out of the formation. And then we had in every funeral package what was known as a supernumerary, which is Latin for essentially one above the number. And that super, as we called him, would have his ceremonial belt on, he'd have his ceremonial gloves on, uh, usually hiding behind a tree or a bush so he wouldn't be seen by the family. He'd march out in ceremonial fashion and fall into formation, pick up the fallout's rifle, and go back uh, to whatever position the rest of the formation was in. So however this, the funeral began, that's how it ended as well. Now having fallen out at the Old Guard is a pretty significant emotional event as well. Uh, Sergeant Major Lee Ward is the current Sergeant Major for 4th Battalion. 
told me uh, that when he got here, he couldn't believe that fallouts were a big deal because he'd never been in the old guard and soldiers fell out of formation at all of his other units pretty regularly and no one seemed to care. Do a few push-ups once they're back to normal and uh, call it a day, but that's obviously not the expectations that our nation has for Arlington. So we'd have to go serious uh, incident reports, kind of investigate what had happened. The sol was there a uh, lack of discipline, lack of leadership for a fallout. In that one particular case, I can report that the soldier actually was coming down with the flu and uh, he had not reported sick call that morning because he wanted to be on the marks with his battle buddies. So good initiative, but bad judgment on his part, as we used to say about some of our privates in the Army. But uh, it can be a challenge uh, in those summer months in particular. Um, but it can also be a challenge even indoors for very long ceremonies, very long retirement ceremonies to stay in, uh, on the marks for that long. You tell the story in the book of uh, General McMaster retirement, and there's usually transition points in the ceremony where you guys are allowed to flex a little bit, but he just jumped right up to the podium and uh, you weren't in, in uniform anymore, but you were there. And I was, I was, on, uh, I was on the parade floor because it happened indoors. Uh, it was a, a kind of a late winter, early spring uh, ceremony and uh, General McMaster uh, was being honored for a long decorated uh, career of service to our history. You know, he won a silver star for valor uh, in the Persian Gulf War. Um, so yeah, normally in a ceremony you have a couple break points. In one of those retirement ceremonies it would be when speeches begin and end, when the uh, commander of troops, in this case the regimental commander, Colonel Jason Garkey, does what's called an exercise, uh, which is simply taking the soldiers out of one position, normally ceremonial at ease, where they've stood for one speech, putting them in attention momentarily, putting them back at ceremonial at ease, all designed just to get the blood flowing uh, to ensure soldiers are not falling out. Uh, unfortunately, General McMaster was very enthusiastic, I suppose, uh, for his speech. So he kind of ran out to the podium right after uh, the Army Chief of Staff, General Mark Milley, finished his remarks, which prevented Colonel Garkey from uh, exercising the troops. But you know, Colonel Garkey rolled right along with it. Uh, he saw what had happened. He just turned right back around and went back to ceremonial at ease himself. And to the soldier's credit, despite standing in one position for 56 minutes during General Milley and General McMaster's speech, not a single one of them fell out. Uh, and they, I gotta say they're pretty astonished what had happened afterwards, but they're also rightly proud of themselves for honoring a, a great general. It's a long time to stand, so that, that's good training. Uh, let's pivot to uh, a far more somber part of the duty, and that's the dignified transfers at Dover. I think a lot of folks who were paying attention during the Iraq War know that that's the spot where the, the fallen uh, service members' remains come in. What was it like the first time you were part of that? So Dover Air Force Base in Delaware is where we perform the dignified transfer of remains, where soldiers who've been killed overseas remains return to the United States. Um, they've done something like the dignified transfer, or sometimes it's been called an honorable carry uh, for as long as Dover has been open, but it wasn't until 2003 at the beginning of the Iraq War that the Army said to the Old Guard, you're going to perform this mission. Um, you're going to perform it whenever it happens. And in fact, Colonel Jason Garkey was Captain Jason Garkey at the time. He was the commander of the Honor Guard Company within the Old Guard. He performed the very first one, and as I write, in sacred duty, he still has the operation order with his handwritten notes on it. Um, by the time I got to the old guard, it, it had evolved. Um, officers played an even bigger role in it. And as you say, I, I was the first person onto the aircraft on my first mission, as on every other mission, uh, which happened early in my time in the old guard, even before I performed funerals in the cemetery. And there's nothing like walking past, you know, a lot of cargo and material into the middle of the cargo hold next to the bay door and seeing the flag-draped remains of your fellow uh, comrades-in-arms, 
who just died a few hours earlier on the battlefield. I mean, it drives home in particular the sacrifice that everyone makes. And sometimes it reminds you of how close it came to being you uh, underneath one of those flags. I had young soldiers and young airmen around me, so I maintained my composure. I didn't want them to see their leader uh, losing his composure. Uh, but it was a, a long and pensive flight back on that Black Hawk from Dover Air Force Base to Fort McNair that night after my first Dover mission, a mission that sadly I had to perform uh, two or three dozen times over the coming 16 months. Although, as we discussed earlier, um, my one of my first months at the Old Guard, May 2007, was the third bloodiest month in the Iraq War because um, it was the height of the surge. Uh, only the first battle and the second battle of Fallujah were, from 2004 were worse. Uh, by the time I left the Old Guard in July of 2008, uh, it was actually uncommon to perform a Dover mission. Uh, it had gone from being a nightly mission to maybe a weekly mission um, because the fighting had declined so rapidly after the surge had succeeded in Iraq. But it's something you can never really forget uh, when you see those flag-draped caskets and you carry them off the aircraft at Dover Air Force Base. What's the protocol? What do you do to transfer? Well, as officer, my main job uh, was to ensure that everything was ready for the casket team to perform their mission. Uh, because those aircraft are coming in with all kinds of cargo and equipment, because they've been moved pretty rapidly from the field into the back, usually the Baghdad airport, into Kuwait, into Ramstein Air Base, and then on to Dover, there's a chance that the flag may have shifted, that the cargo straps may have scuffed the flag or caused some kind of damage to it. So we always inspected the flags. Uh, if the flags were not perfect, we would replace, we would remove those flags and destroy them, uh, and then put a new flag on. Uh, and then in those days, as an officer, in charge of the mission, I would, along with a few airmen, carry the, uh, the transfer cases out onto a vertical loader, uh, position them for the casket team on the ground. That's changed a little bit over time, in part uh, because of the declining pace of Dover missions, in part because today they use military aircraft much more often. In my day, it was almost entirely contracted aircraft, which were flying back and forth between the theater and the United States every day. Um, so the officer role has evolved a little bit. In my days, though, it's a pretty central role uh, to both prepare the cases, carry the cases to where the casket teams would transfer them, and then to stand by and salute every time any set of remains were in motion. One of the most amazing parts of this is that the attention to detail, even though the family member is never going to see it, and virtually no one else is going to see it, but I would imagine that's attention to detail is another way of showing the honor that you spoke and, Yeah, so at Dover Air Force Base in those days, it's the best example of it because uh, in 2007 and 2008, families were not allowed on Dover for the dignified transfer and media certainly was not allowed. That was not until the early days of the Obama administration when President Obama, on the recommendation of Secretary Gates, opened the dignified transfer to family members and if they wanted to the media as well. Um, so Dover is a classic example of the old guard going the extra mile, striving for, for perfection, even though literally no one would be watching except for other soldiers and other airmen. Uh, there are other occasions in Arlington when uh, literally no one would be watching either. Uh, many of these funerals are happening in Arlington months after, um, especially an elderly veteran has deceased. Uh, because there's a wait list for a funeral uh, at the cemetery. And sometimes just, you know, that a, a widow or widower is elderly and has fallen ill and can't travel to the Washington area, or maybe flights were canceled because of weather. So we would on occasion perform funerals with no next of kin or other mourners present, aside from a, a woman who I write about in the book, the so-called Arlington Lady. This is a group of volunteers, mostly uh, um, the wives 
of soldiers or uh, female veterans themselves who come to every funeral to give a thank you or give a note of appreciation from themselves and from the chief of staff of the Army to the next of kin, or in those rare cases when there's no next of kin or families present to ensure that no soldier is buried alone at Arlington National Cemetery. That's a custom that dates back to the 1970s when General Creighton Abrams' wife knew that this was happening and wanted to put a stop to it. But even in those cases, when it's just the Arlington lady and the old guard, uh, we strove for perfection the exact same way uh, as we would have if there were hundreds of mourners present, kind of like the tomb guards uh, at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. You know, they perform the changing of the guard all day long in front of hundreds of viewer, hundreds of uh, spectators in the audience there. But overnight, they perform to the same standard. And I had more than one tell me when I asked, well, why, why do you do this? Even though when no one's watching and the cemetery is closed, no one would know. Everyone else is asleep. And their answer is to point at the tomb and say they would know. Well, it's a good transition to talking about the Tomb of the Unknowns. So it was not part of your uh, detail while you were there, but you do write about it a lot. And uh, how are soldiers selected for that particular duty? Well, it's a very unique platoon inside the Old Guard. Some, some Americans actually make the mistake to think that the Tomb Guards are the Old Guard. In reality, uh, they're probably you know the most specialized unit with inside the Old Guard. They have one single mission, and that's to guard the tomb and to perform the changing of the guard. And no one, they don't perform any other missions in the Old Guard, and no one else in the Old Guard performs that mission. So tomb guards are chosen on a volunteer basis. They raise their hand and say, I want to go through a training cycle that can be anywhere from nine to 12 months. It can be a little faster for a really proficient squared away soldier, but on average it takes about nine to 12 months. And the attrition rate in that training cycle can be up to 90%, given just how high the standards are. Um, so they go through the most rigorous testing and training. They start out doing it in the middle of the night, so there's no uh, spectators there to see them. They will only get out the door to perform a, uh, a changing of the guard and uh, a shift of guarding the tomb or to perform a wreath-laying ceremony until those more experienced sentinels, as they're known, once they earn their tomb badge, are confident that they can live up to those standards. Um, they truly are remarkable young soldiers. Some of the most disciplined, professional, squared away soldiers I've ever met, and most of them are very young. Most of the soldiers who are performing that mission are uh, private first class or specialist. Let's go over some of the misconceptions and true things about this. Uh, first of all, when the ceremony starts, there's an inspection. Uh, I believe there's an inspection for the one about to leave and the one coming in. Those are real inspections, right? Those are genuine inspections. Uh, I have seen multiple occasions on which the sergeant of the guard who's performing the changing of the guard will reach up and adjust a uniform item or straighten a belt or maybe tug uh, the pleats out of the blouse. Uh, in very rare occasions, they will send a guard back to the quarters to fix a deficiency. Um, but those are genuine inspections. They are not just for show. It happens very rarely, so it's always a surprise to the spectators when it does happen. But when you spend as much time as the tomb as I did, and certainly as much as the tomb guards did, you know that it's a real inspection, and you see it from time to time. Of course, no soldier wants to have a correction fixed out on the plaza as opposed to in the quarters where they go out the door. That's one reason why every time you have a changing of the guard, you have three or four fellow guards standing around you, patting you down with masking tape, straightening out your uniform, making sure that everything on you looks perfect for the, that next guard shift. What's a guard doing underneath there, either just before his time or just after? So the guards sign up for guard shifts voluntarily each morning. They're, you know, it's one squad or what the tomb guard call, tomb guards call a relief. Um, and if you're fully qualified, you've earned your tomb badge, you can perform any outside mission. You can, you can change the guard, you can walk the mat, you can do a 
wreath lying. Um, they try to do them in bunches. So someone, you know, three or four guards might take the morning shift while three or four guards take the afternoon shift. Um, so even though they're rotating out inside that block of time, they're still keeping their uniform on. So in that 30, you know, that 30 to hour long period when they're not, 30 minute to hour long period when they're not on guard, they might get a drink of water, they might grab a quick snack, you know, they you know, might work on their uniform, have themselves padded down with masking tape again, you know, wet their gloves so their white gloves are wet and can grip those ceremonial uniforms, um, you know, re uh, memorize the next wreath laying ceremonies they have. Then now when they're not performing in the immediately next guard, they're oftentimes helping the others who are. So they might change in what they call tomb attire, which is even though civilian is still up to the up to the guard standard, sharply pressed khaki slacks and a polo shirt with the tomb badge insignia on it. But they'll be um, helping the guards that are going out. They may be training their young uh, guards in training. They may be doing admin work, working on the daily logbook or working on the kind of admin work that any soldier does, you know, evaluation reports, leave forms, and other administrative things like that. But a relief is on duty for actually more than a day, for 26 hours in a day. Um, and then they're off for uh, the same amount, or they're off for 22 hours, but then they're back on. So they spend all day and all night down there. Sometimes they get, get a moment for a nap, but more often than not, they're working around the clock. Some people believe that uh, the Tomb Sentinels have to swear off alcohol, at least while they're on duty, if not uh, for life, and uh, forsaking other things as part of the pristine, pure uh, image of the, of the unit. Is that true? I've seen a lot of those internet rumors, and most of them are not true. For instance, uh, forsaking alcohol for the rest of their life. Um, let's just say I, I've spoken at the Alumni Association of the Tomb Guards, and uh, if the Tomb Guard alumni are not drinking that alcohol at the cash bar, then their spouses and girlfriends are really <laughs> drinking a lot. Um, but it is true that they would never drink on duty, never drink in the quarters. Another rumor I've seen is that they swear, that they uh, take an oath and never swear again. I I've heard tomb guards use some salty language, again, never on duty, never in public. Or they take a vow of silence for the first six months. Uh, not the case. Uh, you can't perform a wreath laying ceremony uh, or the changing of the guard without speaking in public. Um, and a standard practice for the tomb guards in their training is to have oral quizzes because part of their training is to memorize 17 pages of knowledge about the tomb and the cemetery. So none of those rumors that I've seen are true, but I, I do think the mystique tells us something about the reverence in which the American people hold those tomb guards, that they, they think those things might be true, that they, they believe that the tomb guards just set that utmost standard of honor uh, through their precise marching, through their perfect uniforms, and the way that they uh, pay tribute to those three unknown soldiers who have kind of become a symbol for all Americans who have died overseas. Some things are true, though. Uh, you write in the book that even long after you leave the old guard, if you are found to be in conduct unbecoming of the guard, you can lose that tomb badge. That is true. The tomb badge is the second rarest badge in the United States Army after the astronaut badge. The tomb guards like to joke that no one joins the army to be an astronaut. <laughs> um, but the tomb badge is also uh, very unusual for an army badge in that it can be revoked for bad conduct. And not just uh, at the unit, but after you leave the unit or even if you leave the army entirely. And that revocation authority rests solely in the hands of the old guard commander, whoever he may be at that moment. And on the badge board in the tomb guard's quarter, uh, which shows the badge, the number, or the name, the badge number for every tomb guard going back to the 1950s, um, there are several plaques that say revoked because of misbehavior um, of tomb guard alumni, sometimes after they've gotten out of the Army. I, I'm not aware of any other 
badge or insignia in the army that's completely unrelated to one's particular skill set. You can lose your parachutist badge, for instance, if you refuse to jump on an airplane, an airborne unit. But that's very tightly related to the skill for which you earn the badge. But again, it goes to show the high standards that we expect from those tomb guards, that not just on duty at the tomb, not just in the army, but for the rest of their life, they will do nothing to bring discredit onto the badge and therefore onto the unknowns that they receive the badge for guarding. And you mentioned that uh, the Sentinels are there long after public hours at the cemetery. They're also there regardless of the weather, correct? Whether it's blizzard or hurricane or anything? Uh, so, so nothing nothing in Arlington changes uh, because of the weather. Even if the cemetery itself is closed to visitors, if, if you have a funeral scheduled that day, Arlington will remain open to the family and the mourners for that funeral. So I marched in funerals uh, in the middle of winter in driving uh, snow, snow and you know freezing temperatures. You know, we had, we had various techniques for trying to stay, stay warm as best you could, but you know, when you're wearing thin white cotton gloves carrying a saber, there's not much you can do to keep your fingers warm. Same is true of the tomb guards, uh, whether it's during the day or whether it's overnight hours. You know, driving rain, snowstorms, even hurricanes coming through the capital region. Every moment of every day since 1937, there has been a soldier present on that plaza guarding that tomb. Uh, they don't get into details, and I don't get into details in the book about exactly how they do that and maintaining soldier safety, but it is a certainty that there's always a soldier available on that plaza guarding that tomb, no matter the conditions. It's usually the first question of a book interview, but uh, let, let's put it towards the end here. Why did you decide to write this book? You know, the old guard of Arlington kind of embodies the, the respect, the admiration, even the love that we have for our nation's heroes, especially those who lay down their life. Uh, in defense of our nation. Yet their story had never really been told in, in a full book-length way. They're sometimes uh, mentioned in books about Arlington or, or maybe in articles or TV specials on Memorial Day, but there was never a, a full book written about the Old Guard that I could find. Uh, at the same time, I had found that Arlington and the Old Guard really had a special place in the hearts of our fellow citizens. In Washington, when Arkansans come to visit me, they frequently will stay for a few days and hit all of the tourist highlights, the memorials, the museums, um, the monuments, and the cemetery. And I'll, I like to ask them what their favorite stop has been, and the most common answer by far is Arlington. And likewise, when I travel, uh, first around Arkansas in my early elections and now around the country, and I get introduced and people hear more about my story, the most common question I get is about my time at Arlington, not, say, my time in Iraq or Afghanistan. So it's, it's clear to me that Arlington has a really special place in the hearts of our fellow citizens. You know, it's our national cemetery. Um, it's a place of, of unity and reconciliation and healing. It's kind of ironic since it was birthed in the ashes of the Civil War, you know, a time when Americans raised arms against each other and killed each other in such numbers that a plantation across the river from our capital had to become a graveyard to account for all the remains that were being produced by soldiers uh, on the battle battlefield. But perhaps because of that, uh, that origins story, um, that's why Arlington has become such a special place for our nation and that it symbolizes, just like the Old Guard symbolizes, um, you know, our national unity and the love that we have for those people that defend our nation. Last question, how does the time you had in Iraq, Afghanistan, and with the Old Guard influence how you do your job as a senator, particularly with the armed services? You know, so, my, so my time in the Army influences me every single day in many ways in my service in the Senate, from the smallest things like the, 
the attention to detail that I have to what I do and what my staff does, you know, making sure that we're following up on matters, that we're uh, putting uh, a bow on things, whether it's a constituent matter that they've had a problem with the federal agency or a piece of legislation that we're trying to get across the Senate floor, that kind of discipline, attention to detail, and focus that the Army instilled in me, uh, I carry forward, I instill in my own team. Um, but also thinking about the big picture issues, you know, the defense budget or questions of war and peace, uh, the lessons I learned on the front lines in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, stick with me today. You know, when someone is trying to kill you, whether it's on the front lines in a firefight um, or whether it's a nation saying that they're going to uh, kill you by chanting death to America, you should take them seriously <laughs> and you should try to stop them from doing that. Um, my time at the Old Guard really is a reminder of the consequences of getting those kind of things wrong. You know, when you're laying to rest someone who passed away in Iraq or Afghanistan just a couple of weeks earlier and you see their grieving widow or, ch or children, when you're carrying those flag-draped uh, cases off an airplane at Dover Air Force Base, it's a reminder of the stakes of the decisions that we have to make uh, too often in Washington, D.C. about matters of war and peace. Senator, thank you for your service to our country. And thanks for your time today. We greatly appreciate it. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton is the author of Sacred Duty. It is now on sale. Go get a copy. I highly recommend it. I'm Greg Corumbus. This is Veterans Chronicles. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.